From The Nation magazine, this is Start Making Sense. I'm John Wiener. Later in the show, Fintan O'Toole's personal history of Ireland since the 50s, how a country dominated by a corrupt Catholic church came to legalize gay marriage and abortion by referendum. But first, everything you wanted to know about QAnon, its adherents and their enemies, you know, the Satan-worshipping pedophiles. Chris Lehman has our report in a minute. What's so special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas? These ultra-low net-carb baked goods contain zero sugar, fewer calories, and more protein than the leading brands and are high in fiber to support gut health. Shop now at Hero.co. Do you agree or disagree with the following statement? The government, media, and financial worlds in the United States are controlled by a group of Satan-worshipping pedophiles who run a global child sex trafficking operation. Of course, that's the heart of the nutty belief system of QAnon, the conspiracy theory that's made inroads recently in the Republican Party. For comment and analysis, we turn to Chris Lehman. He's the nation's DC bureau chief. He was formerly editor of The Baffler and The New Republic. And he's the author most recently of the book, The Money Cult, Capitalism, Christianity, and the Unmaking of the American Dream. And he's written the cover story in the new issue of The Nation on QAnon. We reached him today in Washington. Chris, welcome back. Thanks for having me, John. It's always a pleasure. Well, here's the results of that public opinion poll on the QAnon claim that the government, media, and financial worlds in the U.S. are controlled by a group of Satan-worshipping pedophiles who run a global child sex trafficking operation. Completely agree, 5%. Mostly agree, 13%. Mostly disagree, 23%. Completely disagree, 56%. This is from March 2022. So almost one in five Americans agree completely or mostly. How many people is that? That translates roughly into 30 million Americans. So 30 million Americans. <laughs> right. I find that difficult to believe because it's just so crazy. Yeah, well, you know, there is a long tradition of believing crazy things in this country. So um, in the piece, I try to situate the QAnon phenomenon, which I, I do think, you know, your response is absolutely a healthy one to think this is <laughs> demented. You. This is a cult. This is, they have no purchase on, you know, sort of participating in a reasoned political debate. But the sad truth of the matter is paranoid conspiracy theories run very deep in our history and sort of wedded to the um, self-insulating capacities of the internet. There is this kind of hothouse phenomenon where these kind of beliefs multiply exponentially. They aren't really susceptible to rational suasion. They Every time a QAnon prophecy is proven false, they move on to some new and crazier um, set of predictions. So um, yeah, it is very dismaying to think that as, as many as 30 million people are beholden to this belief. But if you look at the state of the modern Republican Party, it's not all that outlandish. First, a little history of QAnon. This is from the PRRI website. This movement, if we can call it that, emerged on the internet at the end of 2017 
The most visible role QAnon has played was in the January 6th insurrection, where that guy, the QAnon shaman, became the iconic image, the guy wearing furs and face paint and that headdress of horns inside the Senate chamber. I checked on his current whereabouts. He's serving 41 months in prison. At his sentencing, he told the judge he wanted to live his life like Jesus and Gandhi, but, quote, I messed up, close quote. Uh, uh, Since then, major social media platforms have banned uh, QAnon, and the leader of the movement, this mysterious figure Q, has disappeared from the Internet. But QAnon has continued to thrive on what are politely called alternative platforms. So tell us a little more about where we find QAnon adherents, especially among Republicans elected to national office. Well, you can find one on the House Oversight Committee, uh, Marjorie Taylor Greene. Um, you know, she is now, as her uh, star is rising in Republican circles, is trying to distance herself from her uh, early infatuation with QAnon. Yeah, I looked up her quote on that. This was on Fox News in January. She said... Uh, that she, quote, got sucked into things online, close quote, which could happen to any of us. Uh, She said, quote, I never campaigned on those things. That was not something I believed in. That's not what I ran for Congress on. Those are so far in the past, close quote. What do you make of that? Well, first of all, so far in the past really can't apply to a belief system that's only existed for six years. (laughs) So that's one red flag to raise. Uh, The other red flag to raise, which I mentioned in the piece, is that while she is disavowing formal allegiance to QAnon, she is still very much aligned with a militant apocalyptic vision of national politics. She introduced Steve Bannon at a Young Republicans function in New York and said January 6th would have come out very differently if Bannon had been on hand and we would have been armed. That's and then she awesome. later said, just kidding. Just kidding. Of course, which is a classic. I also discussed this in the piece because QAnon began began life on the internet. It partakes of something we know very well from Donald Trump's many pronouncements and Twitter exclamations that when you step over a line on a given topic, you just say, oh, it's a joke, and the humorless liberal thought police don't understand. Um, this is this is you and me they're talking about. Yeah, no, absolutely. <laughs> so, you know, you get to have it both ways. The fact of the matter is these 30 million people, overwhelmingly Republican, I think it's safe to say, and any political leader on the right with national ambitions can't really ignore them. So, They will send coded. We saw this with Donald Trump's rally last fall. He went into full QAnon mode. He uh, dredged up the theme song of the movement, uh, this weird lacrimose composition called Mirrors. And he went through this litany of national decline uh, under Joe Biden. It was all very deliberately stage managed to appear like a QAnon revival. And this current, speaking of revivals, uh, Reawaken America tour that Michael Flynn and uh, uh, the Turning Points USA guy, Charlie Clerk, Kirk, have put together is a uh, very powerful, um, well-attended series of political revivals. It's uh, framed as a rebellion against vaccines and COVID lockdowns, but they perform baptisms there. There are QAnon speakers there. All of this is sort of hiding in plain sight on today's right. And I think, you know, the reflex to 
dismiss it while cognitively sound, <laughs> I think it's a political mistake. You can't really uh, pretend that these people aren't here and that they aren't important. You ask who else is affiliated with QAnon, Michael Flynn, who I just mentioned, has you know given versions of the QAnon oath that have been videotaped and gone viral. The comedian Roseanne Barr is an ardent Q follower um, now. And uh, so there, there's a very wide spectrum of both prominent personalities and rank and file um, true believers in this. Aside from Marjorie Taylor Greene, there's right. 214 other Republicans in the House. There's 49 Republicans in the Senate. How many of them would you say adhere to the QAnon conspiracy theory? Or maybe we should change that and say appeal for support from uh, yeah. QAnon if, adherents. If, if you're speaking of the latter phenomenon, it would be easier to ask how many don't. Remember that, what was it, 114? I, I don't remember the exact number, but a very significant slice of the Republican caucus voted after January 6th not to certify the election results. That is a clear signal to this sort of rest of apocalyptic base that we're, we are listening to you. We're not going to abandon you. One can argue with the equivocal results of the 2022 midterms. Where the QAnon candidates mostly lost. Mostly lost, yeah. QAnon was um, instrumental, actually, in recruiting a lot of uh, the election deniers who ran uh, for state attorneys general and uh, secretaries of state across the country. And yeah, in a general election, there is, thank God, still the capacity to recognize that these are insane beliefs and to reject them. So yes. when, when you say QAnon selected candidates or QAnon supported candidates, Recruiting. who is who is this QAnon? Um, that's the, I mean, that's part of the evil genius of this whole phenomenon is you can't point to a, any leader. It's a leaderless. That's one of the reasons I think it's a mistake to uh, refer to QAnon as a cult, because cults traditionally are organized around single charismatic leaders like Jim Jones or uh, the Reverend Sun Young Moon. There is no such figure, you know, sometimes Trump seems like he's auditioning to be that figure. And in the iconography of the movement, Trump is this sort of weird Marvel comics hero who uh, is saving the world from the death grip of the pedophiles. But, you know, it is this sort of self-organized, internet-driven phenomenon of people, you know, taking a great deal of time and energy to document things that aren't real <laughs> and to make them seem like they are, you know, the pattern um, of world history. Those activities, again, I can't stress this enough, are very integral to American religious thought. You know, I looked at that, that poll and it said uh, among the people who declared ad the agreement with the beliefs of QAnon, almost 20% they say were Democrats. Now that makes me wonder, is there something wrong with this poll or is there something <laughs> I don't understand about well, You know, some of these people, you know, we, you sort of saw this with Ashley Babbitt, the woman who was killed at the uh, January 6th insurrection. Uh, she had this sort of new age trajectory that went through a lot of improvised belief systems and landed here and another thing that happened during the COVID lockdown that was really instrumental in boosting the, the growth of QAnon was um, this save the children hashtag that became viral. And there is this weird overlap. It's one, one of the interesting things about QAnon, the discourse of children in peril and rescuing children who are 
in the, the grips of satanic forces, unlike a lot of other sort of vanguard movements on the right, women are demographically probably represented in proportion to the population. And you do see this kind of overlap because, you know, the anti-trafficking child rescue discourse is also really popular among liberals and moderates. So the 20% Democrat thing doesn't necessarily you know, they're probably kind of souls in pilgrimage, you know, mm-hmm. away from a, a certain kind of new age liberalism toward a much more hardcore apocalyptic conservatism. And again, that is not unusual in our history. You conclude your cover story for the new issue of The Nation. The fever is spreading. On the other hand, we've already said QAnon candidates lost in the midterms. I wonder if you think they'll do any better in the presidential race next year. If if Trump is their man, if Trump and QAnon, as you say, were made for each other, what would happen if Trump lost the primaries to Ron DeSantis, for for example? (laughs) I, I think Ron DeSantis is certainly fond of his conspiracy theories, and he's feverishly now trying to reposition himself as an anti-vax, anti-lockdown leader after an earlier sort of more equivocal tour in the early days of COVID when he was pro-vaccine. You know, the anti-vax part of the Republican Party is probably right now where most of the the sort of movement energy is. And uh, that's why you had Marjorie Taylor Greene herself is being touted as a prospective running mate for Trump. She would appeal to the anti-vaxxers who are losing faith in Trump because Trump does actually regard, with a little bit of justification, (laughs) the (laughs) vaccine as a genuine achievement of um, his White House. And you can't separate Donald Trump from an ego achievement. So (laughs) you need, um, of course, then there become other problems of how do you have two attention-hungry conspiracy theorists on the same ticket. I'm skeptical that it would work, even if it did come to pass. But, But that shows you where the logic of the GOP primary process is heading. I also did a piece recently on, you know, Trump's big announcement, his first policy announcement of the 2024 season is this kind of insane declaration of what his next term would do about the schools. And, you know, it's stuff like calling, he actually says wokeism is a religion and I will use the establishment clause of the constitution. It's it's complete nonsense, obviously. But again, you know, you have to always think of the audience for that. And that's who he's pitching at. People said right after January 6th, QAnon was going to go away because this was, if anything was the storm in QAnon theology, January 6th would have been it, right? Uh, Didn't matter. The, The movement kept growing. They kept forecasting more and more crazy scenarios where Donald Trump would assume the presidency. They, you know, wandered off and, and, developed this whole subcult about John F. Kennedy Jr. and sometimes John F. Kennedy Sr. Why not? (laughs) Um, Again, I think it's an error to sort of apply traditional rational feedback um, mechanisms to something like this. It just breaks down. Chris Lehman, he wrote the cover story in the new issue of The Nation about QAnon, the latest conspiracy theory. You can read it online at thenation.com. Chris, thanks for talking with us today. Thanks for having me, John. 
Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill. Now it's time to talk about one of the best books of 2022 and one of my favorites, We Don't Know Ourselves, A Personal History of Modern Ireland by Fintan O'Toole. It's out this week in paperback. In the words of John Banville, the book is a study of the more or less sad state of Ireland from the year of the author's birth, 1958 to the present, years of willful blindness, political chicanery, moral duplicity, heedless cruelty, untrammeled corruption, and sheer lunacy, close quote John Banville. But it was also a period with triumphant victories, an Ireland where abortion was legalized by national referendum, an Ireland that became the first country in the world to legalize gay marriage, an Ireland where years of terrible sectarian violence ended with peace, an Ireland that became one of the most globalized economies in the world, Already I'm getting dizzy. Fintan O'Toole is a columnist for the Irish Times and the Leonard L. Milberg Professor of Irish Letters at Princeton. The new book was named one of the 10 best books of 2022 by the New York Times and the Atlantic, and one of the best books of the year by the Washington Post, the New Yorker, lots of other places. We reached him today in Princeton. Fintan O'Toole, welcome back. Oh, thank you very much, John. It's lovely to talk to you again. You tell this story by connecting your own life to what should we call them larger historical forces. Sounds very conventional, but the way you do it, it's not. The way you do it, it's actually wonderful. My favorite example is your chapter on Katanga in 1961. And of course, readers wonder, well, what does this have to do with Ireland? What does this have to do with you? The Katanga Rebellion, some of our listeners will remember that the CIA helped assassinate Patrice Lumumba, the first elected head of the newly independent Congo, a former Belgian colony. Lumumba had accepted aid from the Soviet Union to fight. To fight who? To fight the Katangese rebels. So Katanga was a mineral-rich province of the Congo. Um, the Belgians in particular, who were the colonial masters there, had a very strong interest in retaining control over it. The British and the Americans had a, an interest in supporting the Belgians because of the Cold War. They saw everything in those kind of uh, antagonistic terms. Um, if Lumumba wasn't one of us, he was one of them. Of course, this was secret. and The, the Belgian involvement was pretty obvious, but the, the US and, and British involvement, French involvement was in the background. But essentially, they supported a secession by Katanga from the Congo, and uh, this developed into a civil war. What did this have to do with Ireland? <laughs> That's a great question. So Ireland is really just beginning to emerge, you know, as a country with any kind of international reputation, right? So it's remember it was neutral in the Second World War. 
the old phrase that was always used by the patriots, you know, for for wanting Irish independence, was we must take our place among the nations of the earth. You know, so finally, you've got the the civil war in the Congo, and the UN has to get involved. But they don't want either side. They don't want somebody who's aligned with with Russia or somebody who's aligned with 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 the West. And so Ireland seems sort of acceptable because it's a Western anti-communist country, but also, of course, it's a, a post-colonial country and it has a lot of sympathy with Congolese independence. And then the Irish army was was sent in um, supposedly to keep the peace. And this is where my own uh, family's involvement in it comes into being, because my my uncle was one of the Irish soldiers sent off my mother's brother, Willie. And you have to imagine this. I mean, they, they had... Second World War rifles, and in some cases, First World War rifles. They had heavy woolen uniforms, you know, suitable for tramping around the bogs of Ireland, but certainly not for the Congo. They had never been abroad, most of them. I mean, they'd never been, you know, maybe some of them had been to England, possibly, but they had no notion where they were going. And they were kind of thrown into the middle of this, this really terrible conflict where there were big forces at play. And you open this chapter with a wonderful scene. Your father had a good working class job as a bus driver. Tell us the story here. Yeah. So, so my, my father was actually a bus conductor, as they were called in those days, which was the guy who collected the tickets. And they were all guys back then. The story really begins with, with my father. In those days, the back of the bus was sort of open and the conductor would sort of stand near the, the back of the bus. So he, 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 they were slowly passing a newspaper seller. He saw the newspaper with uh, the image of these Irish soldiers who'd been captured in the Congo. And he he jumped off and he ran, got a copy of the paper and then more or less abandoned the bus and ran home <laughs> to our house because they they had thought that my uncle was dead. The, the word had spread that these guys had been not just captured, uh, but that they'd been executed. Uh, and so uh, there was a photograph on the front page of the newspaper of these captured Irish soldiers, and it included Willie. <laughs> and uh, that, that was the news, you know. Turned out these guys had been in a, an incredible feat of arms, right, which was a small town called Jadaville. There were about 150 of them. And they were attacked by 3,000 Katangis uh, mercenaries, you know, led by hardened Belgian and French officers with with uh, with a you know a fighter plane and all sorts of stuff. And it was an incredible feat of arms because they held them off for three days and they didn't lose a single man, you know. And and they should have been hailed as heroes, but the Irish didn't know what to do with them because the only thing we ever really knew about in terms of arms was martyrdom, you know. If they'd been killed. They would have been sort of national heroes. But as it was, they were actually treated as cowards and as shameful because they surrendered after three days when they realized <laughs> that they weren't going to get any help. They, they never got any medals. They never got any kind of praise for this sort of thing. And it was a sort of weird bit of, of, of Irish history that just didn't make any sense and, and was pretty much buried. But of course, also there was the issue of race. And that takes me to the question, who were the Balubas? When, when I was a kid, uh, if you were behaving badly, your teacher would say, you Baluba. And the, the Baluba were a people in the Congo who, who were actually um, treated appallingly by the Belgians and the, and, and the mercenaries. They were sort of tribal people and they were exploited and, and, and attacked. And the Irish soldiers actually were trying to protect them, but they mistook a lot of the Irish troops for Belgians uh, and thought that they were coming to attack them and they ambushed them. And there was a big ambush where a lot of Irish soldiers were killed. But for about 20 years, this sort of word, 
Baluba, you know, remained as a slur in Irish speech. Um, and of course, particularly one that was attached to black people. But it, it also, of course, through that racism stood for sort of any kind of, you know, bad behavior. You know, judges with uh, juvenile delinquents up in front of them would call them Balubas. Amazing story. Two months after you were born in 1958, a team of civil servants in the Department of Finance published a plan for economic development. You say it shaped your life and the lives of millions of other Irish people. This was a plan for Irish industrialization that you describe as the opposite of Stalin's five-year plans. Please explain the difference. <laughs> so Stalin's five-year plans, of course, would always set impossible targets, you know, and then, you know, the Stakhanovite effort would have to be made to reach them. And, you know, all the propaganda would be about how, you know, the heroic people had 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 surpassed these impossible targets for pig iron production and whatever. Ireland was so demoralized that when, when, they, when they set out this plan in 1958, they deliberately set the bar really low, you know, because they just realized that, uh, you know, the, the psychological boost of saying, we met the target. And the target was 2% growth. And 2% growth by itself, well, that's okay, you know, but it was 2% growth on almost nothing. So by the time I was born, effectively, independent Ireland had failed. It, it, it was a failure as a nationalist project, simply because Irish people were leaving in huge numbers. They always had left in huge numbers. But again, after the Second World War, there was a huge exodus of young people, particularly to Britain. And that's humiliating. You know, you've 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 gone through all this pain and suffering to, um, you know, declare yourself independent of the old colonial master. And here's your young people going to try and make a life there. There were two countries in Europe that lost population in the 1950s. One was East Germany before they built a wall, and the other was Ireland. And they would have built a wall if they could have built a wall. <laughs> but you can't build a wall around a whole island, although maybe Donald Trump might might, might try it if he, if he had the chance. But so the, the level of demoralization was was enormous, you know, and, and, and just a sense that there is no future. Uh, so what they had to do in a way was sort of burn down the village in order to save it, that in order to sort of try to keep this Catholic nationalist Ireland going, they had to change it radically by bringing in foreign capital, starting the process of urbanization and industrialization, which became a process of globalization over time, as you mentioned. And that's really what transformed Ireland in my lifetime. One of your themes is everyone knew. And the first thing here, of course, is sexual abuse of children by priests. And here you point to a, an account of several children raped by a priest that shows what you call the church's great achievement in Ireland. Tell us about that. Yeah, it's a very dark side of it, isn't it? You know, which is that, that it, in a way, their great achievement was that they, they got so much into people's heads. I mean, this was a, a society that was completely dominated by the church. Tell us about those parents who said they were apologetic. Yeah, so you, you, you know the the this actually came up again and again. Um, you, you know, which was which was cases where parents uh, went to the bishop, you know, because their kid was being abused, and w went w with a, with an with an apology. You know, to say we're, we're really really sorry to trouble you with this, and you know, it's really terrible, and we don't want to cause any scandal, and you, you know. It's it's the sadness of it. You know, th these were not bad people. They were, they were loving parents who wanted to take care for their kids, but they were so scared, 
spiritually. You know, I, I don't just mean scared of kind of temporal consequence, but remember, people really did believe you could go to hell. And they really did believe that the church had the power to decide this, you know. And they people just didn't want uh, to do anything that would damage the church, even though the church was knowingly allowing some of the, you know, the most appalling pedophiles to, to operate with complete impunity, you know, and, and th this was the very dark side of this, as you said, that this, I, I kind of write about or use it as a theme, almost this thing of knowing and not knowing, right? So everybody knew this stuff. We as kids knew it. Yeah, you have a, 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 a shocking, a, a shocking report of, about a teacher uh, of yours, a Latin teacher, and your friend David, who actually confronted him in class? Yeah, you know, uh, this it's very upsetting always to think about. But you know, he—I mean—he would masturbate openly in class. He would—he would fondle boys. It was all an all-boys school. So we, this was the first year of this secondary school, as we call it, be your equivalent of high school. He would fondle boys. You know, he would sit down beside boys and put his hand down their trousers. I mean, this is in class. You know, in, in front of everybody. So it—it it, it wasn't like he didn't even feel he had to hide. And I remember David, who was my my braver next door neighbor, you know, standing up one day and and shouting at him, you know, and 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 of course the one of the distortions that was because kids didn't have a, a language to describe this, you know, he called him a queer, you know, uh, because of course in in in, in the kids' minds everything was kind of lumped in together, you know, with very little understanding of being gay, for example, or you know, we, we knew very little about our own sexuality anyway, you know. So these kinds of words were used, but but he was trying to confront this guy, you know. And it was like a moment where you thought, oh my God, this is, you know, everything is going to crumble, you know. And of course it didn't, it just carried on. It's just nothing happened, you know. And it, it was just sort of ignored. You say that none of the brothers who were your teachers went after you. They picked other boys. Why do you think that was? Yeah, you know, actually, John, I've been thinking about this quite a lot recently. Um, so I always thought it was because they always picked on kids who were more vulnerable, you know, uh, kids who they maybe knew the father was an alcoholic or the kids were kind of, we were all working class kids. Nobody, you know, we were all relatively poor, but obviously some kids were poorer than others. And and I always thought it was that, you know, but but recently in Ireland, there's been a new rash of, of revelations about actually some of the richest, wealthiest schools in, in, in the country, the elite schools, you know, yeah. and abuse of kids who are from very wealthy, well-functioning families going on. And, and this has actually made me having to have to think about the whole thing myself, even, you know, because I think my sense as to why we were OK, this just seems to be wrong. I wonder, was it something as simple as we lived very close to the school and they knew my father and my father had been a boxer, <laughs> you know, he, he wasn't a big man, but he was a, he was a very tough, tough guy. He was an Irish champion, junior champion boxer, you know, when, when, he, when he was young. And uh, it, it may just have been that they were a bit afraid of my dad. You know? <laughs> uh, maybe it was just as simple as that. Another thing that everyone knew was about abortion. While the U.S. recently has, you know, uh, removed abortion rights from the Constitution and banned it completely in many states, Ireland, in the meantime, made abortion legal, not, not by a court ruling, but by referendum in 2018. The story of your engagement with legalization of abortion began long before that, you say, in 1976, 
when you were 16 and had to decide what you thought about abortion. What called the question for you? Had you gotten a girlfriend pregnant? Uh, no, I didn't. Um, I, I'm afraid I wasn't. Um, I wasn't active uh, in any way that would have made that possible at that time. <laughs> I'm a very innocent boy, but but this was simply that I think because I was um, becoming better educated than a lot of people around, it was assumed I knew things. And a very good friend of mine asked me to come to their house, and and uh, it was his sister actually who had become pregnant. Unusually, you know, the, the, the family said, said she 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 wants to have an abortion and we support her, but we had no idea how to do this. How do you do it? And I said, I don't know, but I can find out. And of course, the only way to do it really was to go to England. You know, you, you, you couldn't do it in Ireland, but I was able to get them a phone number. And then being confronted with it, was I going to turn around to that girl and say, you don't have a right to do this? And I knew instantly what I thought, right? Which was that actually what I thought was irrelevant. <laughs> this was about her. It was about her life and her choice. That for me was a kind of moment of, of revelation. But you know, at that time, John, abortion, you have to remember, was was completely illegal in Ireland. In fact, it was a crime in Ireland to tell a woman the name of an abortion service in England. It's the sort of thing Texas is trying to do yeah. uh, right now. But Absolutely. you say the point of that law was not actually to stop Irish women from going to England to get abortions. What, what was the point? The point was to stop them talking about it. The point was to maintain the knowing and not knowing. And of course, this is something you're confronting in America right now, right? which is that the right-wing conservatives both want and don't want to stop abortion. <laughs> they actually don't want to face the consequences of, of what happens. Uh, if you start jailing everybody who, as you say, gives somebody a phone number for an abortion clinic, or uh, they just want to um, make women ashamed, they they want to make sure that women don't talk about it, don't acknowledge it, that it that the things that flow from that, which is that women have a right to control their own reproduction, is not part of the public discourse. And this is what happens in Ireland, right? Which is that for years and years and years, Irish women had abortions. They went to England. I never. Never, really until I would say I was in my late 30s, met a woman who told me she had an abortion. And that was true of all my friends, uh, people I worked with. There was this invisible, silent group of women, you know, getting into the hundreds of thousands, of course, you know, uh, but they didn't talk about it. The weird thing, and I, people in the States might get some comfort out of this, is that actually the right pushed it too far. In 1983, we had a referendum to put this clause into the Constitution. Now, the country in the world at least needed a constitutional uh, ban on abortion. Who <laughs> was Ireland? It was already banned. You could already get life imprisonment. You know, what else could you do? But what was the vote? What was the vote on adding this ban on abortion to the Constitution in 1983? It was two to one, John. You know, I, I remember at the time just the sense of despair. You know, it was overwhelming. Two to one. I'm sort of even slightly relieved that we that we got the the one bit you know that apparently voted <laughs> against it. And then uh, when it was repealed, when it was repealed by the referendum in 2018, what was the vote then? It was two to one. <laughs> it was almost an exact reversal, you know, and it was a very very moving moment because the the original referendum in '83 had been terribly divisive, you know, and really awful stuff, you know. And, and everybody feared that kind of rerunning re it in 2018. That I think most of us thought, well, yes, it, we will win this time. You know, it, it will be repealed. 
but it's going to be nasty. And actually, to be quite honest, it wasn't nasty. And, and one of the reasons it wasn't is that um, the silence was broken. Women spoke about their lives and they spoke about their pregnancies and they spoke about what the choices that they, they wanted to make and had to make were. One of the bad things about Ireland is that it's a small society. And if, if, if it's kind of in a hysterical, conservative mode, uh, it can be really, really claustrophobic. The good thing is that if that turns around the other side, it's a small society where everybody knows everybody. And the person you know is your mother or your sister or your workmate or your colleague who, who's saying, well, I had an abortion. And so storytelling, actually, this happened twice. 2015 was the first time we had a referendum on same-sex marriage. And we were the first country in the world to bring in same-sex marriage by popular vote. You know, it's happened through courts or parliaments. And again, that, that was two to one too, you know, in, in favor of same-sex marriage, which was very, very moving. But again, it was one because LGBTQ people, they had to break their own privacy and nobody should have to do this. I mean, nobody should have to go out and tell their story. But but they did it with 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 grace and wit and humor and 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 compassion and it actually became a sort of love, lovely moment. And I, I remember my father, you know, whom we started with, you know, who was who was well into his 80s, you know. And I'd been in America. I, I was in here in Princeton. I, I, I just got home for the vote a couple of days before. And I said to my father, I wasn't sure how he would feel because he was a very liberal man, but also he'd grown up, you know, with, with certain prejudices and all that, you know. And I said, so how do you think it's going to go? And he looked at me like I was an idiot, you know. He just said, "Why would anybody vote against that?" He, he he literally couldn't get his head around the idea that anybody would would, would think it was wrong that LGBTQ people could marry. So, so the, the the change was really very very profound, and it was a human change. You know, it actually just came from engaging with 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 our fellow men and women. You say abortion was the great boundary line in a way that LGBTQ rights had not been. It was the border that gave shape to the whole territory. And so the, the effort to make Ireland a modern global economy while preserving this traditional Catholic church-dominated culture failed. The people who worried about preserving that difference between the cultural tradition, let us call it nicely, and the economic modernization thought that joining economic and cultural change would mean Ireland would disappear as a separate culture and just become a version of America. Do you think that's happened? Uh, no, it hasn't. I mean, obviously, the place has changed hugely. Uh, all societies change when you move from the countryside to the city, you know, when you move from an agricultural economy to 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 a very sophisticated one. When you move from being like, we, when I was born, we were the worst educated people in Europe, and we're now the best educated. <laughs> 55% of the entire population has a third level degree. So, of course, the culture changes, but I don't think it's less rich. I think it's richer. It's It's actually a very important question, though, John, because the right builds on cultural pessimism. It, it understands culture as something which is fixed, which was created at some point in the past, and therefore in a way can only be lost. The only thing that really happened to it is it gets eroded, you know, unless it's protected. 
And of course, Ireland is one of the great examples of a culture which has been formed through transformation, you know, all the time. Because remember, it's a diaspora culture. You know, it's 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 a culture which for hundreds and hundreds of years is shaped by migration and pretty in our case, outward migration and now by inward migration. It's giving and taking and mixing and matching. And I've never been a pessimist about that just because, you know, you just look at uh, the vibrancy of, of Irish culture. And uh, I think it's a very good rebuke to those attitudes on the right, you know, about what culture is. The book is We Don't Know Ourselves, A Personal History of Modern Ireland by Fintan O'Toole. It's one of my favorites. It's out this week in paperback. Fintan, thank you for writing this book. And thanks for talking with us today. It's been a huge pleasure, John. Thank you. Start Making Sense, a podcast from The Nation magazine, is co-produced by the LA Review of Books and recorded in Los Angeles at our Blythe Avenue studios. Renee Reynolds is our associate producer. Alan Minsky is our producer. Ludwig Hurtado is our executive producer. D.D. Guttenplan is editor of The Nation. Bhaskar Sunkara is president of The Nation. And Katrina Vandenhuvel is publisher and editorial director of The Nation. Our theme music is from Barcelona Afrobeat, licensed by Creative Commons. You can find out more about Start Making Sense at thenation.com and subscribe to Start Making Sense on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm John Wiener. Thanks for listening. credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill.